For those of you who have your Bibles and are remaining in here, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19, if you're following along in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that's on page number 480. And uh, this is one of the most beloved psalms in all of Scripture. In fact, this is the kind of psalm that I think uh, makes a preacher tremble, right? Like, what can I say? What can I add to the beauty of God's word in this psalm? C.S. Lewis said that he takes this psalm to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in all the world. And so today we have the great privilege of studying this psalm. And uh, if you have your Bibles, let's stand together and read God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired today than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Aristotle is known to have said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that if all of mankind were to live underground and observe works of art, and works of mechanism, and then be brought up one day and see the several glories of the heavens and the earth, he would immediately pronounce them 
the works of such a being as we define God to be. If we were to live underground, like say we're in the metro in D.C., like all the time, and only things that we saw were works of art that humans had created and mechanisms, clocks, planes, you know, whatever, just anything we could create with our hands. And that's all we could ever observe. And then one day, you were brought above ground, and you were to look at the stars and the sun and the trees and animals. You would say, this was created by God. Whoever or whatever God is, he made this, and he is powerful and infinite and eternal. That was Aristotle, the philosopher. <laughs> Reality is, as we consider this psalm today, the skies are proclaiming God's glory. Verses one through six of this psalm are about the sky's proclamation. The heavens, we are told, declare the glory of God. I love this psalm. I love the beginning of the psalm. I hope that you will take time, perhaps in the next few weeks, to memorize this psalm. I'm going to make an argument for memorizing it at the end of this message, too, because it is so valuable and so noteworthy and so important to us. The the psalmist begins with this idea of general revelation, that God's glory is being proclaimed that the skies are telling us something about who God is and that he is glorious. I don't know about you, but uh, as Pastor Allen was sharing his moment of uh, looking up to the sky with a telescope, I was recalling and thinking of a moment in my life that uh, just severely impacted me. It was so important to me, and it reminds me of this verse, and it was in a place in Canada at the Rocky Ridge Ranch where I would go every summer and serve at a Christian horse ranch, and they had this deck out back of the dining hall, and I would lay down on that deck and look up at the sky. No streetlights, nothing but uh, the vast expanse of the glory of God on display. And part of the, uh, the beauty of that to me was not just seeing the stars and seeing God's handiwork, but knowing that Wherever uh, I was, that like if I was looking up at the sky and I saw um, the Big Dipper, that when I went home, if I could look up at the sky, I could see in some ways I was connected back to this place that I love and that God's handiwork was on display everywhere I could go. This is the glory of God. I'm sure as you have had times in your life where you've stopped and paused like Pastor Allen was said, saying, and you've looked up, you have had that experience. You have had that moment when you've seen the glory of God and it has impacted you. It's given you like this wow moment. David goes on to say that this proclamation of the glory of God is taking place day after day, night after night. Verse 2 says, day after day pours forth speech. And that, that word there is a, the image of a bubbling spring. There's a constancy to the proclamation that's taking place, that God is constantly proclaiming his glory day after day. It's this bubbling spring of constant declaration of who he is. This reminds me of 
my trip to Daytona Beach recently. As our family went and stayed with my parents, they have a modest little condo right on the beach, though. I mean, it's right on the beach. And their condo faces the north side of their building. And the way they designed those condos, everyone has a view. So it's kind of like carved out. And they're on the northern side. So when they step out into their patio, they can look east and see every sunrise. And then at night, after Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, that's what Mampy and Gampy do, (laughs) they can walk outside on that same patio and look west to the intercoastal, the Halifax River, and see the sun set over the river every single day. There's never a day that they can't step outside and see the sunrise and the sunset. Sunrise, sunset. There's a a lady in their church that takes a picture of every single sunrise and posts it. Just a beautiful reminder of the constancy every single sunrise day, we are reminded of the glory of God. Every single night, we are being told that he exists. It takes place at all times, basically, is what verse 2 says. But if verse 2 says the glory of God is on display at all times, verses 3 and 4 indicate that without literal speech, without literal words, their communication is pervasive in all places. The glory of God declared at all times and in all places. Verse 3 reads in the ESV, There there is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. You were wondering why I brought two Bibles up here this morning. This is uh, my NIV 84 that I had rebound by a friend. And uh, actually, 15 years ago or so, I memorized this psalm in the NIV 84. And so verse 3 says, um, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. And what I wanted just to show you with a little bit of an illustration of this one verse is kind of the different interpretations, the different ways uh, the various English translations will translate things. The ESV is quite literal. The, The Hebrew is like, no speech, uh, no words without language, or something just very kind of brief and staccato. And oftentimes, in Hebrew, you have to supply words. Um, And so I think it's legitimate. In fact, one of the commentators I was reading from, like, centuries ago was saying it's legitimate to say no speech, uh, no language, uh, where not heard. No speech, no language, where they're not heard is what they're saying about the the heavens, okay? The point of verse 3 is this. They're mute, Nothing's happening when the stars are being displayed. We're not hearing an audible voice. What we're seeing is a speechless, languageless communication. And the reason that we know that it's heard and it's being communicated uh, is verse 4. In the ESV, it says, their voice goes out through all the earth. Wait, no speech, no voice, but their voice is heard. That's the point, and that's why I think the NIV's translation gives you an idea of what it means to go thought for thought. The thought behind verse 3 is, there is no speech and there are no languages where they're not being heard, where the heavens are not being understood or comprehended. You could go to any place on earth, any tribe, any dialect, any and without a single word spoken, God is telling them something, and they understand 
and comprehend it. God's glory is being displayed universally. That's what verse 4 says. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Verse 18, just to kind of back it up a little bit, Grant, it's on the screen here. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And that's why Paul says they're without excuse. Anywhere you go in this world, God has been telling us, us humans, he exists. That he is eternal, that he is powerful. God declares his glory in this unique way, that he is the creator. There's a limitation to what the communication says. So theologians have called verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19 an example of general revelation. How many of you have heard that term? Don't be embarrassed if you haven't, but just, yeah, general revelation is this idea that there is a Uh, a universal understanding that God is creator. This is what Aristotle was talking about. Like, we don't have to do the same experiment to know that every single person has at least been given some information, some communication that God exists. But Romans tells us beautifully the reason why people don't think he does or pretend they don't think he does. This is an important. If you're having conversations with people who are so-called atheists, be reminded of the fact that the reason they are an atheist is largely because of their ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we are too. We are ungodly and unrighteous in and of ourselves. We're, We're not for the grace of God. But the Bible teaches us why people suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness push back the truth. Kids, when you're in school and, and your, uh, your public school teacher is telling you uh, that we evolved from something or that there's uh, just a random chance and we don't know how anything got here, please understand that those, those teachers are suppressing truth. In their hearts, they've laid out on the back deck at night. If they were to search deeply, they would know that Something can't come from nothing. Ask any three or four-year-old, you know, where did that come from? And they'll just keep asking, well, where did that come from? Let's just grant, for the sake of argument, the Big Bang Theory. Well, then where did the Big Banger come from? Where did any matter come from? Something doesn't come from nothing, which is why God must be eternal. He must pre-exist anything that exists. He is eternal, and the heavens tell us the fact that there is something means there is God. And everybody knows this. But the reason why in our society and in the world people want to push back and 
press back on that is because they love their sin. We love to do things our way. You see, if there is a divine being, if there is a divine creator, then he has rights to us. You don't create something without having the right to it and how, it, how it's designed and what its function is for and what its purpose is. I'm looking at a lot of engineers out here. You know what I mean. You get to say what it's going for, where it's going, and how it's going to do it, and what its purpose and function is for. And if that exists, then we are accountable to live that way. And that's a challenge for us humans. We want to do what we want to do. And so it's easier to say, no, no, it can't be real God, and to keep doing things the way we want to do them. But the Bible tells us the heavens are constantly telling us that God is real and that God exists. So there is no place on earth that you can go. It's, uh, it's a constant proclamation, and it's a universal proclamation. And then David gives a prime example of what that universal proclamation is, and that would be the sun. I've already kind of alluded to this out on the, are you, are you back with me on the patio of the condo, right? And you're looking, and you see a constant proclamation and a universal proclamation. So this is why the sun is a prime example of God's glory on display in creation. It comes forth constantly, like he says, a bridegroom coming out of a tent. It's got joy, it's vigorous, it's kind of strong, it's like a young man. I see some of you young guys out there. And it comes and it goes, and when it does, it seems like it's running a course, like it's got a circuit, so like it's taking a race every day. And it says he's like a runner, and he just constantly with vigor is running that course day after day. And he gives that example. But then, here's the hinge point. Here's the connection point to the second portion of Psalm 19. He says, nothing is hidden from its heat. The sun, every day as it comes forth, it covers all of the earth. There's no part of this globe where the sun is not felt. We are universally being impacted by the sun. And that's where he shifts gears and springboards off of that into the second portion of our text, which is about the scripture's perfection. There is the sky's proclamation. And then David shifts gears rather quickly and abruptly to the scripture's perfection. Now, before we dive into this section of the psalm, I want you to take note that the noun for God has changed from the generic uh, L, God, creator God, to the personal covenant name Yahweh, Lord. It's translated usually with all capital L-O-R-D in our English Bibles, Lord. And as I was looking at my teen study Bible from growing up, it says this. It says, after describing the skies as a reflection of glory in the first six verses, Psalm 19 switches gears. From the sun, moon, and stars, it turns to consider the beauty of God's law. Reflecting that change, the poem in Hebrew uses a different, more personal name for God. The first six verses refer to God with a general name that anyone of any religion might use, general revelation. God has revealed this much about himself, that he is God and that he exists, 
and that he is creator. But from verse 7 on, God is called the Lord, a translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh, which was revealed to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, 15. God's laws reveal even more about him, his personal voice to his chosen people. He introduces himself to them by his first name, as it were. And so the the poetry shifts, and some uh, scholars and commentators want to say, well, maybe these were two different poems. Uh, No, I think it actually points to the unity of the poem, because David understands and knows that there is a way in which God has revealed himself and his glory more generally, but then there is a way which God has revealed himself more specially, more specifically. This is why the word of God is sometimes called special revelation or specific revelation. We learn more about the Lord God, our Redeemer. The first six verses, the heavens, they tell us about God, Creator. This 7 through 11 teaches God is Lord and He is Redeemer. Charles Spurgeon said that He is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father has written them both. We are wisest when we read the world book and the word book and consider concerning them, my father has written them both. In this section, beginning in verses 7 through 9, we have a prime example of Hebrew poetry. Parallelism that goes for three verses with six lines. And and each of these lines tells us something about the perfect word of God, about scripture. There are a number of words that are used to describe it, and I'll just commend to you uh, some word studies for, for your own homework, maybe uh, dust off the logos that you got as a, being a member and being a part of Faith Life, or see if you can uh, find some more information in a study Bible about these various words for the Word of God. I want to summarize for you what I think the best consensus translations of the Hebrew words are. And the way I did this, I took a little scratch sheet of paper and I compared six English versions. CSB, ESV, NIV, NASB, NKJV, and NET, the New English Translation. All six are phenomenal. And then I just looked and saw, this you can see, this is not uh, super scholarly. You wouldn't have to know a ton of Hebrew to do this, but compared notes on how they translated them. And I'll tell you, I'll just kind of spare you the, the long story and tell you in a short version The ESV actually chooses five of the six consensus words. So when it says the law of the Lord is perfect, that word Torah is translated law five out of six times, okay? And it goes on to say the testimony of the Lord is sure. That was the majority translation. And so law, testimony for Aduth, precepts for Picadim, commandment for Mitzvah, fear for Yirah, and then judgment. So this is where when you get to 9b, You see, the word says, the rules of the Lord are true. My ESV has a a three next to it, or like a footnote, and it says, or just decrees. And I believe that that translation, just decrees or judgments of God, are true. 
I think that's the right translation. I think it's the best translation. And that is the majority translation of the English version. So if you're looking for word for word uh, examples, this is once again where kind of the ESV falls on the spectrum, a little bit more literal, especially with that asterisk right there. So we understand all these various descriptions of the scripture. It's the law, it's the testimony, it's the precepts, it's the commandment, it's the fear of the Lord and his words, it's the the rules or the just judgments of God. And all of those things, in summary, from a 30,000-foot view today, are things to be obeyed. That's the connection point. All of God's word Rules, judgments, ordinances, testimonies, commandments. David is using an example of various ways that the word of God ought to be obeyed. It is for us to submit ourselves to. This is the word of the Lord, and it is perfect. It is overwhelmingly right and true and good. So the perfect word of God has a pervasive sway on how we should live our lives, and it has an impact on us, and that's where this is going. You've got the the pervasive glory of God having an impact everywhere in the world. Like the sun, nobody gets out of it. The pervasive word of God and the glory of God in his revelation has an impact to our deepest parts. There's nothing hidden from the law of God. Every part of us is laid bare. Like Hebrews says, it it pierces to the division of joint and marrow, like into your soul, the word of God. Nothing is hidden from it. That, I think, is the, the way this poem kind of ties that connection. And then he does describe six ways that the word of God impacts us and six benefits of the Word of God. We studied these in December of 2019. We were having a a New Year's message. It was the end of the year, and the the New Year's resolution, you remember, was think sweets. It's like the New Year's resolution was to think more sweets, like have more sweets in your life. And the idea was that the Word of God is sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb, and we were going to have more and more of God's Word because it's delight to us. It's pleasing to us. And so here are the ways the Word of God benefits us. I'm just going to review those six points. Bam, bam, bam. So the Word of God renews our souls. Verse 7a. The Word of God makes us wise. Verse 7b. The Word of God satisfies our hearts. Verse 8a. And the Word of God illuminates our eyes. It gives us Vision, how to see, how to rightly do things, 8b. In 9a, we studied that the word of God remains forever. Aren't you glad in a changing world where it seems like every day something is different, that the word of God remains unchanging? And then lastly, the word of God demonstrates God's justice. God is a righteous judge. He gives just decrees. When he judges, he always judges rightly. And then David continues in verse 10, saying that more to be desired are they, that would be these various aspects of the word of God, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, 
drippings of the honeycomb. And from that, we concluded in that message a year and a half ago that the Word of God is the source of great profit and pleasure. The Word of God is the source of great profit to us and great pleasure. Don't try to strip away delight from duty. Do not try to strip away delight from duty. One time I was getting ready to leave town, and actually not long before that, I had left town and I had brought Christina flowers. And uh, it was just genuine from my heart. I just got them and said, I'm going to miss you. I want you to see these and just know I love you while I'm gone. And, and that went really well. <laughs> the second time, um, I, I, I brought the flowers home, but I'd, I'd, I'd gone to the grocery store and I picked them up there and, you know, I was like, kind of unloading, here, Judy, you take something in, and then I grab the flowers, and I'm like, here, these are for you, and just kind of, it, it, it was kind of like, this is what I'm supposed to do, and of course, I do delight in loving my wife, but I had, I had taken the delight away from the duty. The duty was right. The duty to love my wife is always there, but the delight in loving her was lacking that day, I confess. So this is my point. When you're coming to God's Word, and we're doing our Bible reading plan, I hope you have a sense of duty to it. Like, that you understand this is a discipline? It's something we should do. But I hope it's not only that. That it is not just another checkbox. That's a way towards Phariseeism and legalism and heartless and empty religion. Remember, the Word of God is our source of profit, and pleasure. Find delight in God's Word. When you go to the Word of God, love the Word of God. Be renewed. Look to the Word of God to make you wise, to satisfy you, to illuminate you, to make you steadfast, to develop convictions in you that align with God's justice, with God's ways, and God's thinking about things. Resolve to enjoy, cherish, and love the Word. David tells us in verse 11 that the perfect scriptures, they can warn us, keep us away from harm, and they can also reward us. Some of you today need to get back in the Word of God and hear and heed the warnings of God. God has set uh, boundaries and, and laws for us help guide us to keep us on a path that will avoid making shipwreck of our faith, making shipwreck of our lives, of our families, of our careers. The Word of God warns us, and the Word of God rewards us. The greatest source of human flourishing for us will be obedience to God's ways. He created us. He knows us best, and every command God gives is designed for your good. It's a good command, and it's good to obey because you will flourish because of it. This verse 11 then also serves as a hinge point. If you read it with me, it says, By them, the words of the scriptures, is your servant warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. Notice, David, the author, says, By them is your servant warned. And this is the transition, not only in this psalm, but I would argue a connecting point to the previous psalm. 
Remember last week when we talked about King David and all his accomplishments and how he understood himself to be a servant of the Lord. If we will approach God's word with that obedience, if we will approach God's word as his servants, we will be rewarded. So David, as the servant of the Lord, prays. And this is where we see thirdly and finally in this psalm, the servant's prayer. In verses 12 through 14, David prays, and he asks God's pervasive glory to penetrate even the hidden crevices of his own heart. Do you see the connection now from the sun, where there's no place on earth that is not impacted and radiated by the glory of God the Creator? The same is true for our hearts as servants of the Lord. There's no part of us that will not be impacted and radiated by God's law. So David says, who can discern his errors? Boy, that's a good question. Isn't that a good question? Like, husbands, you, you know we can ask our wives, or wives, you know you can ask your husband. Sometimes it's hard to see your own faults, your accountability partner. Do you have one? Do you have someone, some other believer you can talk to? Because so often we are so blind to our own faults. Who can discern his own errors? It seems fine to me. I need the law of God, and I need brothers and sisters in Christ to say, "Um, sorry, brother, you are not seeing this clearly. David says, forgive my hidden faults. There were sacrifices to be made in the Old Testament for unintentional sins. There are things that we do that we don't even know we are sinning against God. And David prays that God would, by his word, penetrate even to his deepest heart. Then David turns in verse 13 from the indiscernible and unintentional sins to asking God to keep him from the big ones, the willful ones, what he calls in verse 13, presumptuous sins. These are the sins that some have called um, eager, and uh, they are committed with deliberation, with design, resolution, and against the check of our conscience. These are the types of sin where you know you are transgressing God, and in your heart you do it anyway. And David says, please God, keep me from that. Keep me from that. This is why I think this psalm is so awesome to memorize. You're praying, if you pray this servant's prayer, for God to help and illuminate parts of your life that you are unaware about, and you're opening yourself up to correction and instruction and rebuke from the Word of God, which is what Paul says is useful for. So would you pray that God would use His Word to change your heart? But then would you also pray that God would keep you back from those things you already know. You, you are already enlightened. Brothers and sisters, if you come to church often, this is a prayer for you because so much of God's word has come to you and your conscience is enlightened. You know you shouldn't be doing that thing and yet in our hearts, if we're honest, we know sometimes we want to do it anyway. And David prays, God, please help me. Please keep me from those things. How often could we pray that prayer And then, how often could we pray verse 14? I'm thinking in our day, with the various controversies and conversations and many things taking place in our lives, 
How often could we pray, Lord, please let the words of my mouth and the things I'm even thinking, the meditations of my heart, be pleasing to you. I'm thinking every five minutes. I need the every hour needs to be like revised for the next hymnal. I need the every minute these days. God, please help me to speak things that are in line with your will and think things. Some of you think you got it good because you have pretty good self-control on what actually comes out. Let me remind you that like nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, not even the motives and thoughts of your heart are hidden from God. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. There was only one, as we know from a New Testament perspective, who was perfect, sinless, and a servant of God. Of course, David was God's servant in a foreshadowing sense, but it was the suffering servant Savior Jesus who was truly blameless, truly honored and obeyed the law completely. He is, Scripture says, the express image of the glory of God. We have seen his glory, John said, as one and only begotten from the Father. His glory that is now and will forever be proclaimed will go forth wherever the sun reaches. So are you tracking with me now? Because we understand that there is the world book where God's glory is on display pervasively and there is the word book in which God's glory is on display. But then there is the word. And in the hearts and in the mouths of his faith-filled servants, God's glory will go forth to all the nations. There will be no corner of this globe left untold that God is glorious and that he is Lord and Redeemer through Jesus Christ. God is now, we are told in Hebrews, spoken through his Son. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 10, in verse 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And then Paul does something interesting. He quotes Psalm 19, verse 4. But I ask, have they not heard? For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. I believe in Paul's mind the pervasive and universal proclamation of the heavens foreshadowed the universal proclamation of the gospel to all the nations through the folly of preaching. Here we are today, and God's glory is being told. It is being proclaimed. And it's not just the fact that he exists, it's the fact that he loves you, and he sent his son Jesus to die for you if you will repent of your sins and believe that he paid the price for them, rose from the grave, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. You see, that's the interesting thing, is I don't think that this was the only place that Psalm 19 was on Paul's mind in composing Romans chapter 10. Think with me now about the end of Psalm 19. 
It says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Can you think of a place in Romans 10 where those two nouns are prominent? Mouth and heart. Romans 10 verse 9. Romans 10 and 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, friends, today I want you to hear that getting your mouth and your heart right before God requires, from a New Testament point of view, believing in Jesus. These are the words of a mouth and the meditations of a heart that please God, because God is most glorious when we exalt and magnify the name of Jesus Christ, whom he sent for us. So how can you pray? How would you respond today to the word of God? Believe in your heart. And Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 10, it's with the heart that one believes and is justified. You will be forever freed from the guilt of your sin. Like God, as the righteous judge, could condemn you guilty. And he says, no, he believes in the one who paid the penalty for him. Believe that Jesus died for you in your heart and you will be declared not guilty. That is justification. So it's with the heart that one believes and is justified. In verse 10 he says, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So what would be a pleasing thing in God's sight? Confess that Jesus is Lord. Confess that he has the right to rule and reign over your life and the decisions you make about what to do in this world that he has created you for and created you in to give glory to him. And so what happens is we go from the universal, general proclamation of the glory of God in the creation to the more specific revelation of the law of God, which points us to Jesus Christ, where ultimately, by faith as Christians, we go out and we proclaim like the stars. We proclaim like the sun. Everywhere we go, we are proclaiming God is glorious because Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus has forgiven us. We are forgiven and free because of his penalty paid on the cross for us. So we are proclaiming the glory of God. That is pleasing in his sight. So, God's glory is proclaimed rhythmically, daily, and without interruption in the skies. God's glory is demonstrated in the perfect scriptures, but God's glory is declared by faith-filled believers whose hearts and mouths profess with joy that Jesus saves. Glory without words pervade the sky. Glory with words came down from on high. But glory in the word, that glory will I, glad-hearted, believe and confess till I die. And he will come again and take me to be with him. Will you pray with me? <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the magnificent display of your glory to every human on this globe. We pray that your glory would shine resplendently and remind sinners of your existence and their uh, position 
as a created being. May we remember that we belong, body and soul, life and death, to you. Lord, help us in this culture in which we live push back against the prevailing sentiment of autonomy. So often, autonomy is the God of the Western world. And the heavens are telling us not so fast. We owe our existence and our obedience to our Creator. But then, Father, by your grace, you have given a more specific revelation revealed long ago through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures and ultimately fulfilled and revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, not only today are the men and women, boys and girls in this room without excuse because of your creation, but, Father, more specifically, there is no room for ever saying one has not been told that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God the Creator. And so, Lord, I pray that the the words of this message and the truth of who Christ is will penetrate into hearts and lives by the power of your Holy Spirit today. Lord, that there might be someone here today who had not previously placed their faith and trust in Christ that would understand that by your grace you have made a way for us to be reconciled to God the Father. So Lord, I pray that that would happen today. Lord, that you would move amongst us. And then Father, for those who do profess faith in you, I pray that you would teach us how to pray more like David did how to pray this servant's prayer, that we would keep it in our hearts and on our minds and pray often, Lord, that you would search us, help us to discern where we are going astray by your word. Help us to delight in your word. Help us to be warned by your word. Father, reward faithful obedience to your word like you've promised to do. And then, Lord, I pray that you would keep members of Leonardtown Baptist Church who profess Jesus as their Lord from presumptuous sins. Keep me from presumptuous sins. Lord, keep us. Help us to understand that obedience to you is the way to um, happiness and flourishing. Lord, it may get us crucified in this world, Jesus was perfectly obedient to the law. But Father, in the end, Jesus was rewarded for his obedience and will receive the full reward of the inheritance of nations. So Lord, may we keep the end in sight, Lord, as we obey. May we remember you promise so much more in the world to come for those who are willing to give up houses, lands, and family in this life that we receive it back a hundredfold in the life to come. 
may we keep an eternal perspective because we serve an eternal creator God. So Father, give us grace today by your word. Plant this word deep in our hearts. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.